Welcome to Off the Record with Paul Hodes here on WKXL AM and FM, streaming live over the internet and archived at nhtalkradio.com. We're brought to you by the Birches at Concord, New Hampshire's first assisted living community designed specifically for those living with Alzheimer's, dementia, or other forms of memory impairment. Join a tour, celebrate life at the Birches, call 224-9111. I'm joined on this sunny summer day with by Chris Ryan. Chris, how are you? Tremendous. Yourself? Well, I'm very good. I, I just got back from uh, the conference, the the summit, so-called, with my big fat toe. I mean, Nate toe, because I get it confused because my toes are very big. They're bigly big. They're the biggest toes, the best toes. And Nate toes are not all that big. They're, they're small, weak little countries. And I, I gave them what for? I gave them a piece of my mind. And by the way, it is the most stable, genius mind in the whole wide world, and they believed me, and I said it, and I said it again, and they said yes, oh yes, 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 everything I said they loved because they need America, and we don't need them at all, and I, I told Angela Merkel, your country is weak, you just cozy up to Russia, of course, I'm going to Russia, I love Russia, and I'm going to hell. I'm going to see my friend Vladimir Putin. Oh, that's very good. Yes, we are so glad to be meeting with uh, the Trumpelsinski. We are going to have a little Putin puppet summit. We're going to have a Putin puppet show. All the marionettes are dancing already on Russian television. They say... All that Russia tried to do to break up NATO was for Schlagener. We could not do it. We could not break up NATO. We could not create divisions. But my little puppet, little, little Pompelfinski has done our work for us. I am so glad. Uh, I, as you know, I am a great admirer of, of Vladimir, my, my friend Vladimir. And when we get together just... Mano a mano. I'm going to ask him for the PP tape back. Yes, I am, because that's very important to me. So, folks, Donald Trump has accomplished what Russia could not. He has sowed divisions in NATO. He has alienated our allies. He has created dissension of the kind that only the Russians could dream about. Meanwhile, here at home, the Supreme Court of New Hampshire has ruled that the bill which would require college students to declare uh, their Hold residency. on one, one sec before we move on to, to state issues. I want to point out something which took place um, that being is very, very rare on your own show. I'm yeah, being interrupted on my own show Donald, by Chris Ryan. Donald Trump said today that he wanted to apologize. Think about that for a second. Wait a second. Wait a second. Say that again because I must have missed it. He said he wanted to apologize. What did he want to apologize for? Uh, I want to. Uh, I must. I'm tweeting. I want to apologize. Really, I do. I'm so 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 sorry that I I didn't make them make them make them give up ten percent of their GDP for military. He wanted to apologize uh, to Theresa May for uh, for the comments that he uh, he made in the Sun. Oh, really? Well, you know, I had an interview. She said she's a terrific woman. I, I had an interview, and I said bad things, bad, bad things. I, I don't, Sometimes 
My mouth runs away with my brain. Have you ever seen a mouth running away with a brain? You can, if you look at Main Street Concord, that drug-infested den, you can see my mouth running away with my brain. But I guess I shouldn't have said that. This is the first time in my life I've ever apologized for everything, anything because I believe in deny, 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 and lie. Deny and lie, lie and deny, deny, deny and lie, and never apologize because why should I apologize? Because I have the big fat toe. I am the big toe. I can't believe that Trump apologized. <laughs> this is the first time ever. His aides must have been so scandalized by the fact that he got up and lied by following up his interview with The Sun at which he trashed Theresa May. Hey, Donald Trump has said the worst things about me that anybody ever has said in public. I'm really, really upset about it. That that after that, he got, he went and, and denied that he'd said any of those things, and now he apologized. So here's a guy, folks, in case you missed it, doesn't care really about the truth. He'll lie until, I guess in this case, he was caught. I wonder what could have persuaded him. What possibly could have persuaded him to apologize? Come on, Chris. I don't know. He had, he had a press conference with, I think it's the fact that he got called out on it. And that, um, you know, it's it's easy to, you know, to say things on Twitter or to, um, you know, say things to a newspaper reporter. But, you know, when you start to see the real ramifications of it, and they started to explain, you know, how she's on the ropes there and Brexit and the economy and all that. And, you know, she's been supportive of you. And so that I think he felt I think he felt bad. And um I, I, I still can't. I still can't explain him apologizing because I've never seen it before. No, wait, no, the the world is stunned, ladies. And I want to apologize. Those the, are four words that you never, ever, 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 ever hear from, the from Donald Trump. Public radio was stunned today by news that Donald Trump, Donald Trump, the man who never says never. Apologize today. This is big news. Our correspondents around the world are sending in their radio reports. Donald Trump has apologized and the world is in shock. It has clearly wiped out all the damage he did to NATO at the so-called NATO summit. And the apology creates an entirely new Donald Trump for us to make fun of. Donald Trump is now a weak weak, weak leader who apologizes. He can't control his mouth. He can't control his brain. It runs away with him. But now at least we know Donald Trump is capable of an apology. That means Donald Trump is capable of anything, and I'm sure his supporters will line up to say, what a magnanimous gesture by a great American leader, Donald Trump. We love you. I mean, let me just ask, how is it that Republicans who support Donald Trump can support his cozying up to President Putin? Because all he ever does at these NATO summits, at least the last couple he's been privileged to be at, has been to trash NATO and build up Putin. And now he's going off one-to-one -to, -one to talk to Putin in behind closed doors with just a translator. What's he going to say to Putin except give me back my pee-pee tape? 
<laughs> what else is he going to say? <laughs> I'm I'm going to talk to him about interference. Uh-huh. He's going to say, no, I didn't. Uh-huh. What more do you want me to do? What more do you want me to say? There was no collusion. And, and Putin will say that. There was no collusion, PayPal. No collusion. But what I really want is the PP tape back. Because once he gives me the PP tape back, maybe maybe then I can have friendly relations with him. I want relations with him. I want him to be my friend. Folks, Vladimir Putin is nobody's friend except Vladimir Putin's. So Trump's cozying up to Putin is just still a mystery. And the Republican support for Trump's cozying up to Putin because they nobody says anything about it. The fact that it's clear that Russia meddled in our election and they're going to try to meddle again seems to elude our Republican compatriots. Folks, it's time to put country above party and call it like it is. Where are the Republicans of conscience who are standing up to Donald Trump? Because it's one thing for Democrats to moan and squeal and whine and yell and kick their feet. It's entirely another for Republicans of conscience, for reasonable Republicans of conscience of whom there are many, I know many in New Hampshire, to stand up and start talking about it. Because unless we hold this guy's feet to the fire on every single thing he says, he creates a continued peril to our democracy, to the world, to world safety, to world peace, to the world economy, to the United States economy. He is a clear and present danger to himself and others. And it's time that Republicans started standing up and doing something about it. BBC uh, interviewed the uh, Sun reporter who um, talked to uh, Trump and one of the aspects of this interview is that he was uh, the reporter was given ten minutes, and um, uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders said, um, "You know, it's it's this is the last question." He said, "No, no, 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 no. I I'm going to do some more," and he he like shoot her away, and he went on for another twenty minutes, and that's where he started to get in trouble, um, comparing um, his uh, poll numbers to Abraham Lincoln's and saying he was more popular than Lincoln amongst Republicans. Of course, uh, Abraham Lincoln was president before there were telephones or polls. What uh-huh. I really meant to say was that John Sununu is more popular than Lincoln because John Sununu loves me and I love him. And um, the other one was that uh, you talked about Ireland being a part of the UK, which um, – it's not. Well, of uh, course, of course, it's right next to it. it it's right <laughs> so next to it. Of course, it's a part of it. What I what I meant to say was it's on the same island. That's what I meant. So the reporter on the BBC um, gave this. Uh, I apologize. Impression. I apologize to all all Irishmen. I apologize again. I'm so sorry for what I said about Ireland. He said that Trump is unchallenged in his own organization. It's like being in the court of a medieval emperor. Trump is unchallenged because he is a stable genius. I am unchallenged because I know more than everybody. I know more than the generals. I know more than the so-called scientists. I certainly know more than the fake media, which keeps lying about what I say. They lied about what I said to the newspaper. They lied about what I said after I said what I said, what I didn't say to the newspaper. And they're lying about my apology because tomorrow I'm going to unapologize, okay? Uh, that apology was a mistake. Somebody, it's fake news. I don't believe you, Chris Ryan, that I apologized. I don't remember what I said. I might have said it, but I don't really remember. You're fake media and you're lying. 
I don't know what to say to Chris that. Ryan has nothing to say because <laughs> I am I am the emperor. I, <laughs> you know, it really is like, you know, we are all fiefs. This is his fief, and he is like the king of the castle. He's the he's the fiefs. The fiefs. The f- yeah. The f- no, it's a fief. It's a fife. I, a a fifi fo fum. I don't know what it is, but I smell the blood of Trump dumb because Donald Trump is like the Duke of Dismay. He is the the Baron of Bombast. He is. He is, let's give it to him. He is one of a kind. And the more we talk about it, the more we don't watch what his hench people, his cabal is doing to the country as he flies around the world creating havoc. He is the pig pen of politics is what he is. He's like, he's like pig pen, you know, in the Charlie Brown comic strips. He's got his blanket. He's covered with, covered with disaster wherever he goes. And he just spreads this cloud of dissension, disaster and dismay everywhere. What can our allies think? What can they think about the United States? How far the mighty have fallen is all I can say. So it's off the record with Paul Hodes on WKXL AM and FM, streamed live over the internet, archived at nhtalkradio.com. Happy to welcome to this segment, our special guest, yes, that's me, Donald trump the Baron of Bombast, the pig pen of politics. Thank you, Paul. I, I so enjoyed getting on your show and lying some more. And I was joined by Chris Ryan. We're brought to you by the Birches at Concord, New Hampshire's first assisted living community, designed specifically for those living with Alzheimer's, dementia, or other forms of memory impairment. Join a tour, celebrate life at the Birches, call 22491. And don't go away, folks, because we have a, a really special guest, actually live, actually in person. An actual real person. An actual real person, a living, breathing, real person, by the way, with a brain, with a heart, and with conscience. Senator Jeff Merkley from Oregon will join us to talk about democratic politics, his plans, his thoughts, uh, and what he's been doing to help restore democracy to the United States. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Welcome back. It's Off the Record with Paul Hodes here on WKXL AM and FM, streamed live over the Internet and archived for your binge-listening pleasure at nhtalkradio.com. We're brought to you by the Birches at Concord. New Hampshire's first assisted living community designed specifically for those living with Alzheimer's, dementia, or other forms of memory impairment. Join a tour. Celebrate life at the Birches. Call 2249111. Well, I'm very pleased and honored to be joined by a good friend. Senator Jeff Merkley of Oregon is here in New Hampshire. He's actually here in Concord. And he's actually sitting next to me. And we're going to talk about democratic politics and uh, what he's up to and what he sees for the future of the democracy in the United States of America. Senator, welcome to Off the Record. Uh, Thank you so much, Paul. It's wonderful to be with you. So why are you in New Hampshire? Well, it was so courteous for the young Democrats to invite me up to address their barbecue last night, and, and I'm going to do an education forum and an environmental forum, talk a little bit about Mission 100 to convert to 100% clean and renewable energy. 
So uh, how was the barbecue? Was the real question? Oh, it was it was excellent. And the yeah. Young Democrats here have an extraordinary organization. They have some seventy-one Young Democrats running for office. You know, the system in the House here with so many House seats, great opportunity for young folks to get involved. Well, it, there's been a huge growth uh, among the Young Democrats. It's been a great program. I've been a big big supporter, um, and uh, it's really great to see that younger people are getting involved because. Uh, Perennially, in our midterms, uh, one of the real problems that Democrats seem to have is turning out young people uh, when there's no presidential candidate on the ticket. We'll talk a little bit more about presidential politics, but uh, for now, what do you think uh, Democrats in New Hampshire can do looking to 2018 to energize people to get out and vote in greater numbers? Because if we come out, we'll win. Well, I'll tell you, just starting with the uh, young folks, very, very concerned about uh, net neutrality. Uh, we had uh, the Senate stand up for net neutrality, and the House shot it, shot it down. Uh, so there's state actions that can take place on that, so local action that can pr- protect net neutrality. Then we have the issue of uh, college debt, a really big deal. Uh, the, we used to, when the time I came out of high school, the public university was much better funded, tuition was much lower, and you could almost make enough during the summer to pay your tuition. So we almost had debt-free college back then. But now we have a world knowledge economy, and we've gone the wrong direction, turning it into just kind of a financial gauntlet with the possibility of debt the size of a home mortgage. And then we have just uh, a lot of concern about here in the state over this uh, challenge of the poll tax on students. And talk about uh, something that's un-American, because our democracy really is founded around the, the principle of voter engagement, not, not voter suppression. If you really believe in a democratic republic, if you believe in the vision of our nation, you should be uh, doing everything possible to enable people to participate, not trying to put up roadblocks. Well, of course, um, the New Hampshire Supreme Court just ruled that the bill, uh, which would create essentially a poll tax on college students and others, uh, was constitutional, and it's waiting now to uh, see whether or not the governor, who has said many different things about his position on the bill, uh, is going to veto the bill or sign it into law. And of course, this is a law which, uh, instead of simply requiring people to reside in the state and spend most of their time in the state as college students do, uh, requires um, college students and others to get a driver's license, to register to vote, to to uh, set up shop here permanently in New Hampshire when they're college students. And uh, it seems to me to be part of a concerted effort on the part of Republicans to suppress the vote. Absolutely. That's exactly what it is. And it includes uh, having to register your car, which can be a very expensive, uh, significant uh, process. No, it's it's all about discouraging young folks from participating. I mean, they always they already feel a little discouraged because they can see that the system is is rigged. This is one thing when President Trump used those words, he was right. But unfortunately, he's on the side of the folks who are rigging the system rather than taking it on. We have Citizens United with this enormous amount of billionaire money that can outweigh. Uh, well, it's like the equivalent of a stadium sound system, drowning out the millions of, of ordinary uh, people. We have gerrymandering, and the court has done nothing. We have voter suppression, and the court's really invited it by tearing down a big chunk of uh, Voting Rights Act. Uh, so uh, we need to, to say, you know, enough of this government by and for the powerful and the privileged. Uh, let's uh, really turn up the people power here and take our nation back. 
Well, you're going to have a platform along with other senators to uh, talk about those kinds of issues uh, and uh, your beliefs and what's right for the country when uh, the nomination of uh, a bright, young, uh, highly conservative, arch-conservative judge comes before you uh, to be considered for the vacant Supreme Court seat that the Trump administration engineered uh, by um, buying off uh, Justice Kennedy uh, so that he'd resign in time for them to create this appointment. I'm being a, a, just a little cynical, but not really. The facts actually support what I've suggested in terms of uh, those kinds of conditions. But putting that aside, uh, how, 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 what approach uh, are you and your colleagues going to take to uh, examining this nomination for the Supreme Court? Well, we're going to take a very thorough examination. The Republicans insisted that every single document that uh, uh, Justice Kagan had ever um, put her name to when she served the, the executive branch be part of her record to be examined, and we're going to insist on, on the same. And uh, my understanding is that, that may be a million pieces of paper, and we want to see them all. And we have the same responsibility that everyone has to review their, their record. But we already know quite a bit about his record. And by the way, this comes on top of a stolen Supreme Court seat. What happened in 2016 when there was a vacancy under Obama and the Senate leadership refused to entertain a debate or a vote saying it was election year? That was a profound damage to the integrity of the court, the legitimacy of the court. Uh, whatever Mitch McConnell did to justify it, he said it's an election year, he said it's kind of an American tradition, uh, that was uh, unfortunately a lie. Uh, there's nothing in the Constitution that says you, you Senate doesn't have an advice and consent responsibility in election year. And 15 previous times we'd had a vacancy in the Supreme Court during election year, and all 15 times the Senate had debated and the Senate had voted. Uh, so here we have a stolen seat, and now we have a, a, a nominee that the president has selected based on several things. One, that they would tear down Roe versus Wade. Second, that they would tear down uh, health care ACA. And third, that they would have an expansive view of presidential power. And I want to focus on that, that third piece sure. for a moment. Because among the nominees, this is the individual, Kavanaugh, who says that a president should never be indicted. And then goes further to say a president should never even ever be investigated. And then proceeds to say if a president doesn't like what a court has said about the constitutionality of a law, he can ignore that, that law. And then goes on to say that, in fact, the president should be the one to choose uh, any special counsel uh, or any be able to fire a special counsel at, the, at will, which means without, without cause. So this is appropriate for a king and a kingdom, but clearly not for the checks and balances in a constitutional democratic republic. Uh, so uh, the, the president is trying to buy himself a get-out-of-jail-free card, and we need to make sure that doesn't happen. Well, it's a pretty extraordinary circumstance that at the time that a president who has uh, specialized in uh, greed, corruption, and lawlessness is um, holding court uh, and imperiling our democracy and is under investigation by an independent counsel um, who is uh, being thorough and diligent 
uh, in the investigation, about which we already know quite a bit in terms of indictments, in terms of guilty pleas. Um, uh, at the same time this investigation is going on, he has uh, 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 the ability to appoint a justice whose views, as you've said, are clear on the record um, and that are inconsistent uh, with the law of this country, with the reading of the Constitution uh, that is almost universal, with uh, the views of uh, judges and courts for eons, his, the views of Brett Kavanaugh on presidential power are clearly so far out of the mainstream that he makes a logical choice for this president because, as you say, the president wants a get-out-of-jail card. So I get that there are a million pieces of paper to look at. He has 300 decisions to his name. And I am with you that Mitch McConnell did a terrible damage both to the integrity of the Senate and the Supreme Court. Uh, what, in the end, do you think Democrats can really do? I mean, are we, are we simply in a matter of pushing the rock uphill? Or do you believe that there is something effective that Democrats can do to block this nomination? And is it anything more than just trying to convince some Republican colleagues of conscience that uh, this nominee is so far out of the mainstream that not even a, a Republican of conscience can accept him? We do have to think of this in terms of 51 votes and think of it in terms of Democrats and Republicans who care about our constitutional democracy. And we don't know what is going to show up that is going to uh, help affect the, the, the mind and judgment of, of our, our colleagues. But in the end, it has to be a bipartisan vote to get those 51. Various folks have said, well, isn't there a procedural thing you can do in committee? And isn't a procedural thing you can do on the floor? Uh, there's some things that can be done that, that could provide some temporary delay. But in the end... 51 votes can overrule everything. Uh, and so we've got to work this on substance as we did with the health care bill. Uh, when we engaged in the health care bill, people said, well, the ACA's dead. Look, look the, the Republicans ran on this. They got the majority. It's going to go down. Uh, but we just kept activating the grassroots on the principles of why would you want to tear down the health care bill of rights that gave you, the, and, well, pre-existing conditions. You can get insurance at the same price. Oh, uh, the um, the fact that you can get um, uh, things that uh, prevent disease uh, for free uh, because an ounce of prevention with a pound of cure. We kept talking about the substance. On this case, there's folks who are going to be concerned about his privacy views, which is, that is, his opposition to personal privacy. Folks who are concerned about his, his view on reproductive rights. People who are concerned about his view on presidential powers. Uh, and uh, we just need to make sure we have a full conversation, treat our colleagues with respect, and ask them to uh, stand up for our Constitution. You know, one of the things we uh, often do on the show is, is uh, we, we go behind the scenes a little bit. Um, and in this case, there are some serious dynamics at play that may... Um, play into some of the tactics and strategy that uh, the Democratic Senate leadership employs. For example, uh, we have uh, three uh, centrist, we'll call them kindly, centrist Democratic senators uh, such as uh, Joe Manchin in West Virginia, uh, Donnelly, my former a colleague and a dear friend from Indiana um, who are facing tough election battles uh, in November of 2018. And, and they've, got, they're, they've got what's called a Hobson's choice. 
on this uh, vote. Um, if they, the, 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 the uh, challenge is if they don't vote um, uh, for the nominee, they lose a lot of independent support and, and crossover support in their very conservative uh, states. If they do vote against uh, the nominee, uh, if the vote comes up, then they lose a lot of Democratic support. So in light of those tough, tough, tough votes that could sway the entire future of the Senate, and therefore the fate of the country, um, is there thought about uh, making sure that the review of uh, Brett Kavanaugh's uh, uh, credentials and work is, uh, is, is, uh, is, is diligent enough to get us past the November election? How's that for a diplomatic well, way? That, no, it's very diplomatic. And uh, uh, delay for delay's sake is not going to help us get those 51 votes, uh, but responsible thoroughness uh, to make sure we know every possible thing that needs to be known uh, to do our, our job. Uh, that is uh, essential. In the end, the, the, the majority can cut the process short, uh, which comes back to why we have to have the, the debate on, on substantive merits. We're talking with Senator Jeff Merkley of Oregon, who's taking a swing through New Hampshire. Um, of course, it's only 2018, folks, but it's never too early to visit the beautiful Granite State and see what's happening here on the ground. It's Off the Record with Paul Hodes on WKXL AM and FM, streamed live over the Internet, archived at nhtalkradio.com, and brought to you by the Birches at Concord, New Hampshire's first assisted living community, designed specifically for those living with Alzheimer's, dementia, or other forms of memory impairment. Join a tour, celebrate life at the Birches, call 224-9111. Don't go away. We'll be back after a short break to talk further with Senator Jeff Merkley, our special guest. We're back. It's Off the Record with Paul Hodes here on WKXL AM and FM, streaming live over the Internet, archived at nhtalkradio.com. For your binge listening pleasure, you can listen day and night to previous shows and catch all the good stuff that makes Off the Record one of New Hampshire's favorite shows. We're brought to you by the Birches at Concord, New Hampshire's first assisted living community designed specifically for those living with Alzheimer's, dementia, or other forms of memory impairment. Join a tour, celebrate life at the Birches, call 224-9111, and I'm very pleased and proud honored, I'd say, to welcome back our special guest, Senator Jeff Merkley of Oregon. Welcome back to Off the Record. Uh, thanks so much, Paul. Well, we've covered a lot of topics. We've uh, talk, talked about uh, the young Democrats and the surge of Democratic enthusiasm that we see. And by the way, I should tell you, Senator, that this year with our 400 seats in the state legislature, Democrats have filed for a record 383 of those seats, and uh, Republicans have filed for 333 of those houses seats. So we've got a 50-seat advantage, and I'm hoping that that kind of enthusiasm plays out throughout uh, the ticket here in New Hampshire and nationally. We've seen some very surprising uh, events politically in the country, one of which is uh, the defeat in a primary of my former colleague and uh, congressional musical buddy, Joe Crowley, uh, good old Irish Paul from Queens, New York, uh, by a progressive activist uh, Latina. 
Uh, that kind of stunned Democrats around the country. It seemed to send a shockwave through the party and the leadership about what's going on in the party. I was asked by a reporter yesterday what I thought about the battle for the soul of the Democratic Party. And I said, I don't think there's a battle for the soul of the Democratic Party. I think Democrats have soul, and we know what our soul is all about. We know what our values are. The real challenge is articulating a concise policy agenda uh, that is uh, about the 21st century and translating that policy agenda into an emotionally resonant message that not only speaks to the left and progressives, but can attract um, uh, centrists and independents and Republicans of conscience and the business community who really the Democrats have trouble talking to sometimes. And uh, how do we speak to the business community to say, look, progressive values, um, a, healthy, a healthy people, a productive people, a happy people, um, a well-educated people, a people who are not worried about their personal security and their communities. Taking away those fears from people and lifting people up is good for business because it gives you employees, it gives you stability, it gives you a healthy, happy workforce, and that means profit. So why aren't you folks Democrats? How do we as Democrats and those of us who uh, are labeled progressives or adhere to progressive values, how do we create an agenda and a message that speaks to a broader community and begins to turn around the fear and divisiveness that we've seen uh, under Trump? Well, it's very clear that if you're fighting for the middle class and you're fighting for a sustainable planet, that you are really doing things that provide the foundation for a very successful economy. On the fight for the middle class, what's important there? Housing. When you build housing, you put people to work. Health care. When you expand health care, you put people to work. S living wage jobs. When people have living wage jobs, they're able to buy products from, from the businesses. Uh, education. Businesses need well-educated individuals ready to jump into the workforce. So all of that builds a strong economy. And if you're talking about the transition to 100% clean and renewable energy so that we can take on this climate chaos that's doing so much damage, and we see it in every state, we see it in my home state of Oregon, we see it here in New Hampshire, you're rebuilding the entire energy infrastructure of this country, you are putting a tremendous number of people to work in good living wage jobs. So let me uh, ask you this. That's great, and I think it's really important for Democrats to talk about issues. And you've done a great job um, championing important issues. And I, I hear them as issues. And sometimes the more Democrats talk, the less people hear. Um, we've got a lot of people out there who um, used to be in the middle class and who now feel that they're slipping backwards. And we've got a country that because of um, the economic policies that have been followed by Trump and his ilk, including tax cuts that have only benefited those at the top. Uh, we've got a country that's increasingly uh, built out of the rich and the poor. And in, in the 20th century economy and the failure of our manufacturing and industrial base through globalization and other forces, we're now dealing with artificial intelligence, we're dealing with robotics, we're dealing with machines being able to do the jobs that used to build a strong middle class. Does talking about the middle class really work with people who feel like they've been forgotten uh, by Democrats? 
Well, I tell you, there were there were things that uh, Trump talked about that resonated. He said workers have been left behind. He put it that way, and uh, he was going to fight for workers. Uh, well, you know what? That was his rhetoric in the campaign, and people bought it. But it turned out that it isn't what he did. Instead, as you pointed out, he spent his energy last year getting a trillion and a half dollar loan from the national treasury, and they gave most of it to the richest Americans. Uh, the uh, You know, I've held 360 town halls in my time in the Senate, uh, one every 10 days. And nobody has come to a town hall and ever said, hey, I've got this brilliant idea. Let's borrow money from the next generation, run our nation deeper into debt, and give the proceeds to the richest Americans. That's not what I hear. I hear people saying, we want jobs, invest in infrastructure. We want jobs, invest in health care. We want good health care, invest in health care. We, we have people living on the street because there's not enough affordable housing. We've got a very low vacancy rate. Invest in housing. Uh, put this country on track. Why are we slipping behind Canada? Why are we slipping behind Europe? Uh, this is, um, we're, way off, we're way off track here. So uh, the, uh, the President Trump had a message that resonated because he was targeting exactly what is happening, which is the working Americans are being left behind, but they're being left behind by his policies. And so uh, he, he, he reached across the aisle, uh, grabbed our point artificially, because he he knew it was true, and then he abandoned us as soon as he went into office. So his so messaging. Let's, let's face it, we're up against a guy who seems to have endless charisma. Um, who's you know he's got the charisma of of every fascist uh, dictator we've ever seen. He's a Mussolini, um, American Mussolini. Um, so he's got charisma, and he's able to use social media and project messages. Uh, that sell to America. Can Democrats somehow, in a few words and in a concise way, create messages that uh, will resonate in the same way that his messages? Because what I heard you say was, it's time to invest in Americans. It's time to invest in America. Now, that is a very nativist-sounding uh, message that's kind of a uh, uh, a counterintuitive for Democrats because you're using the word invest instead of spend. Uh, you're talking about invest in America. Uh, that could lead to people thinking have have Democrats gone nativist. But that's really what you're saying that instead of uh, deficit spending that uh, hurts our future generations and actually hurts our economy, we've got to make sound investments in. Education, innovation, infrastructure, uh, and we've got to take on real reform of what ails us, including our campaign finance system um, and the way we approach uh, the environment. Uh, education, innovation, infrastructure, and reform. Now, there's a concise economic policy agenda that seems to address um, an overarching approach to our economy. How do we translate that into a vibrant, economic, and emotionally resonant message that speaks to the heart of America. You know, you're doing a pretty good job of it, Paul. I like the way that uh, you're articulating it. Uh, and um, uh, the fact is, uh, I live in a blue-collar neighborhood. I grew up in the same same neighborhood. And the, the folks in my neighborhood, uh, they have seen the, the vision of the American dream slip away. 
Uh, they used to think they'd be able to buy a three-bedroom ranch house post-World War II, pretty simple structure. Uh, my dad, a mechanic, he could buy it, a single, single income for the, the family, and we could even go on vacation, go camping each year. I mean, that was a huge leap from the previous generation. And now people in my neighborhood, they believe that the only chance to buy a house is probably going to be if they inherit it from, from their parents. That's, that's what's changed. And the... I, there's a, a young man in my neighborhood, uh, I'll call him Nicholas. His father said, I'm not going to encourage him to go to college. He'll end up with debt the size of a home mortgage. He'll be like a millstone around his neck, and he probably won't have a job to be able to make the payments, and it'll just drag him down. And that's not a, an un- illegitimate fear. That is happening uh, to uh, millions of young folks uh, across America who have twenty, fifty, hundred thousand dollars $100,000 in college debt because we're not investing in affordable college. The rest of the world is. So whether it's career technical education, whether it's public schools, whether it's higher education, early childhood education, we, we are failing in the education enterprise that is the foundation of opportunity for all. So I think that vision, that vision of opportunity and fairness that has been abandoned by the Republicans as they simply pursue greed for the rich uh, is what we, we have to awaken people to. The fact that the powerful and privileged are taking over our country, this, the they have reinforced it in every possible way. Think of what happened in 2017 in the Senate. There were three basic things that happened. One was a fight over health care with Republicans wanting to wipe it out for 22 to 30 million people. And by the way, the Affordable Care Act didn't just help those people who got insurance. It helped everyone who went to a community clinic or to a hospital because they had so much more money to spend on, on providing services to the right. community. And then the second thing that they did was this bank theft of a trillion and a half dollars to give to the, the richest. And, you know, people said, well, maybe we'll get a little bit at the bottom. But they also threw in, they threw in a provision that damages the insurance pool and is going to drive up premiums. And we're seeing it right now. So whatever people at, in the middle class might have gained in a little bit of tax advantage, they lost with higher insurance premiums and higher drug prices. Which brings me to another area where Trump said, you know, I'm going to take on those high drug prices. And what did he do? He bailed completely, 100% bailed. Uh, I'm for the vision that uh, since so many of these drugs are based on research we pay for here in America, not research done in Europe, not research done in Canada, we shouldn't allow drug companies to charge us one penny more than they charge in Canada or Europe. That would bring our drug prices down enormously overnight. Well, um, are you for Medicare for all? I am for Medicare for all, and I also put forward a vision of how we can get there called Choose Medicare. And so it starts with putting a Medicare public option on every exchange and then proceeding to uh, enable companies to buy Medicare policy for their folks. It's overhead drops from 20% in a private company to about 3% for Medicare. Uh, they can no- negotiate the price of drugs and the bill I put forward. Uh, and so that's one path to get there. Another path is to lower the, the age steadily over time. We had that provision in the Affordable Care Act for a week until Lieberman of Connecticut bailed out on us, and we had 59 instead of 60, 60 votes. But if we'd lowered I the remember. age to 55, oh, yeah, I remember. That, I, that was, I was there. so painful. Yeah. I had to come back, by the way, and explain to all my supporters uh, why the ACA all of a sudden had lost uh, the public option, Why, wh- where did it go, and why did it go. And that was one of the most painful things I ever had to talk about. No, we have a public option in Oregon for workers' compensation. 
Uh, so workplace health care. It cut the cost in half. And people don't even know that the state accident insurance fund is actually a public option. They just think it's another company. And then uh, Sheldon Whitehouse, now a senator but previously insurance commissioner for Rhode Island, looked around the country and said, what's the most cost-effective way uh, to go on workers' compensation? And he took the Oregon plan, and it cut the cost of, of workplace health care in half in Rhode Island. So a public option is a powerful tool. That's why the insurance companies fear it. But how about having executive, a president, who stands up to the insurance company and gives us a fair shot to get that public option, who stands up to the drug company and said, it's not right you charge us more than you charge in other developed countries. So, Senator, you um, took uh, a lead courageously, uh, importantly, on uh, uh, going to the border and highlighting the obscene policies of the Trump administration in tearing babies away from their mothers. Um, what did you see early on that, that others didn't? Uh, I, I was really struck by uh, your visibility on the issue, and uh, it's given you an awful lot of uh, buzz in New Hampshire. People are, uh, are really um, delighted. Uh, I, you know, to the extent that there's delight in politics these days, I can tell you that, um, uh, you know, when I've uh, talked to folks ab about you, um, there's a uh, there's a lot of po positive vibe, and uh, a lot of it is due to the visibility on, on the border issue. Um, you're from Oregon; it's way in the north. I mean, uh, why? Wh wh what? What caused you to to focus on the issue? Well, we all have a stake in immigration. The vast majority of us uh, have immigrant uh, histories. Uh, many of our, uh, our our parents, grandparents, our ancestors that many of them fled persecution, some religious persecution, some the, the situation of war, some the situation of, of famine. Uh, we have Lady Liberty that says, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, treating people fleeing persecution with respect and a, a welcome uh, is uh, right to the heart of America. So when I heard that the administration had a new policy and that involved taking families that were seeking asylum, fleeing persecution, and uh, inflicting trauma on the children, I thought, that can't be true. And I said, there must just be an exaggeration of some nuance that changed, uh, because I couldn't envision that anyone would deliberately inflict trauma on children. And, um, well, I had to go find out. So I went down to the border to find out, and it turned out it is true. And now 3,000 children ripped out of their parents' arms, and the, the administration doesn't even know where the parents are. The glacial speed of reunification. That is not who we are. We must not stand for family separation. We stop it, and we can't stand for family incarceration either. We're not going to allow internment camps here in the United States of America. We've been talking with Jeff Merkley, senator from Oregon about what's going on in the United States. Senator, thanks for joining us on Off the Record. You're so welcome. Great to be with you, Paul. Folks, we're brought to you by the Birches of Concord. 